0: This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are talking about a juicy topic. It's behavioural activation. Now, you might have groaned when you heard that, but by the end of this episode, you will not be. Maybe you've groaned because you find it difficult, or maybe you're just like, CBT, that's rubbish. Well, we're going to talk about it today with Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Bronwyn. So, Amanda, just remind the listeners who you are and what you're about. So I run
1: Amanda Moses Psychology, which is a company focused on supporting,
0: supervising, training early career psychologists. Fantastic. And listeners, you may remember Amanda from previous episodes. We've done an episode on treatment planning, another one. There have been previous episodes. Oh yeah, the National Psychology exam. (laughs) I love how I started that sentence so confident and I was like, I definitely remember all of them, but I had one. (laughs) Okay. Um, Um, So listeners with behavioral activation today, we're going to go through a vignette and then we're going to apply some questions. So I really want to show you exactly how behavioral activation looks like, because I really dislike it when I guess other psychs or supervisors are like, well, you just do behavioral activation with them and then you're like yeah cool I know that (laughs) I think I look I totally agree I think what I
1: find often is that people think it's just scheduling activities and that's where they get
0: stuck Mm. yes totally but it's not that so let's have a look and we're going to go through it step by step with you in this episode we'll go through the cycle of depression what's behavioral activation how it helps to reduce depression, common misconceptions, common things that early career psychs struggle with. So Amanda's observed some of this in her supervision. And if behavioral activation is not working, what do you do? So we'll troubleshoot a few things as well. You ready, Amanda? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. I'll read out the vignette. So Steph is a 25-year-old mechanic apprentice who lost their job four weeks ago due to the business closing suddenly. Since then, they have stayed mostly in their room sleeping, they've stopped responding to texts and reaching out to friends, they've stopped going to their weekly volleyball game. They report low energy, feeling pretty down in the dumps, and that they're not motivated to do anything. They came to therapy to help them stop feeling this way and get back to their old self who was happy and motivated. They've said, I really miss that person. So what's your initial impressions of Steph, Amanda? Amanda? So it seems like, I mean, given the time frame and some of the symptoms
1: there, it would definitely be worthwhile screening that person for depression.
0: Yes, yeah. My thoughts as well. So when I think of depression, tell me what you think as well, Amanda. But I think I read in a study once that you can pretty much ask people two questions and with 90% accuracy, it it's like a positive screen for depression. And that is, are you experiencing low mood and do you have reduced interest in pleasure and previously enjoyed activities? Wow. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know
1: that. Yeah, but yeah, there are two of the um, symptom criteria for depression. I know that you'd have to meet kind of one or the other, um, and then you've got like a list of maybe seven other things um, that you would. Well, there's seven other potential symptoms you need to meet five of nine um, in order to be diagnosed with depression. But it seems like this person has got what at least. What do we say? Low energy. Their mood's low. They're not motivated. Mm. already
0: three yeah totally so we do an assessment and then see what else is going on for this person but right now just for the sake of the episode we're gonna say okay like let's go with depression as a diagnosis maybe Amanda will start with the cycle of depression so what keeps depression going so I think it's gonna depend on what psychological theory that you're
1: using to understand your client but let's do CBT today because it's first-line treatment for depression Um, And if we're going to use a CBT approach, we are thinking that the reason why depression comes about um, is usually due to perhaps the way that somebody is making meaning of or thinking about the circumstances that happen in their life, uh, which can lead to these feelings of sadness, despair, etc., That then naturally leads to a change in someone's behaviors um, or activity levels, which then serves to reinforce um, a low mood. But it's a little bit more complex than that. So that's a really simplistic version. If you're thinking of depression, you have somebody who's got a whole host of physiological symptoms that present as real barriers for them to do almost anything. It's actually quite uniquely challenging to work with because you've got a client who really medically um, has got low energy. They're experiencing perhaps fatigue, inability to concentrate. They don't have the capacity to feel that same level of kind of pleasure or joy um, as they did prior to depression. Uh, Perhaps they're not sleeping well. They've got no motivation. So they've got some very significant barriers for them to engage naturally when you're experiencing a whole host of symptoms like that, you're not going to feel like doing much. I know I wouldn't. Um, And so hence you have people withdrawing, maybe reducing social contact, typically reducing their activity levels. And what that means is, is that if I'm not doing as much anymore, I no longer have an opportunity to feel pleasure or to feel a sense of mastery or achievement things that I would normally get it from. So therefore, the less I do, the less opportunity I have to feel that which then serves to reinforce this low mood state. And the worse I start to feel the worse or the less likely I am to keep doing things, which then again, just keeps reinforcing this low mood. So it's, it's this self perpetuating cycle.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, so to put that in an example, something that I might hear with depressed clients is that the dishes pile up. And it's like, okay, the dishes pile up because I just don't have the motivation to do them. But then every time I look at the dishes pile, I think, God, why can't I even just wash one dish? And then I wash one dish, but I feel exhausted and I still feel like I'm a failure for not doing the whole lot of dishes. And it's just reinforcing. And I was like, well, I may as well just like lie down because they're just gonna keep on stacking up and nothing I do is effective.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really great example. Um, And so what you find with depression and why it's so challenging is that it reinforces itself. And the person experiencing depression obviously has these real barriers um, from being able to do anything to get better. Because for anybody, if you didn't have that innate motivation or energy or concentration, or you didn't get that reward or that sense of pleasure from doing something, you would it's almost impossible to get yourself going. And totally. that's what people with depression are, are kind of struggling with and facing. And I think that's something that tends to be underestimated a lot from clinicians. If they haven't experienced
0: depression, they may not know what that feels like and how hard that can be. I agree because then they can just go in kind of gung ho and be like, I will just schedule you in yoga five times a week and not understanding the significant effort it would take to do that and that they might not be able to or even gain a sense of pleasure from doing that. So it can be very Mm -hmm. invalidating for a person with depression. So I agree that step one is really empathizing and meeting the client where they're at um, and being like, look, this is hard. You actually have biological factors which are making this hard for you. That's exactly what
1: I say to my clients. I feel like just validating that this is a genuine medical condition, which is stopping you from being able to do these things. It's not because you're bad or you're lazy or you're not trying hard enough, um, but actually you've got a real medical condition that right now is actually making all of these things really hard for you to do. And so I think You're right, doing that as a first step is the most important thing you can do, really validating them and making sure your assessment of them is thorough enough to really capture how they're functioning and what that functioning looks like right now so that when you are determining those next steps and those goals that they're quite realistic given their capacity
0: at this point in time, not how they used to function but how they're functioning right now. Yes. So Amanda, what is behavioural activation and how could it help in this situation? I mean, how does it help in general, really, with depression? So behavioural
1: activation is a very uh, well-researched evidence-based intervention for depression, quite specifically. What behavioural activation is doing is really looking at these two principles, which is pleasure and mastery and mastery is our sense of achievement or a sense of accomplishment that we get from doing things the idea or the theory is is that people with good psychological well-being will have a good balance of a sense of both pleasure and mastery every single day and we are hypothesizing that if you are someone who is suffering with depression due to those low activity levels you will not be experiencing very much pleasure and mastering your day, which we know again reinforces that low mood. And so behavioral activation, the whole aim really behind it is about targeting those two key principles. We are targeting someone's level of pleasure and their level of mastery. And we're looking to increase both
0: those things in order to improve that person's mood and well-being. So if I go back to the dishes example beforehand, then that would mean that we would be saying to the person, okay, can we schedule in five minutes of dishwashing and see how many dishes you get done? And then we will do that the next day and the next day. And hopefully that person's cognitions would then be like, I did five minutes of dishes. That's really good. So the Research-based for behavioural activation, as you were saying, is really strong. Like It's been very well thoroughly researched. We know that folks who experience depression and it's because they have lost interest and pleasure in their activities and they're not getting that sense of mastery and achievement. If we get them to steadily introduce those back into their life, then they tend to start feeling like they have more energy and they start to have reduced depressed mood. So that's all really good. So I'm wondering, Amanda, could we give it a try in how we would introduce behavioral activation to Steph?
1: I really like to explain to my clients, kind of much like I said, um, in a way that is providing them some of that kind of knowledge and education and giving them some like good science behind it but simple science um so i would probably say something to steph like you know understandably after losing your job four weeks ago um this really had an impact on your mood and as your mood started dipping and you started noticing that your sleep patterns were thrown off your energy levels got low that motivation started dipping with that too you know you did mention as well that you've stopped reaching out to friends, you stopped going to your weekly volleyball game. and I, I completely understand that, given how you feel, it's natural to not have that natural motivation right now to be doing things. But the thing is is that what what the research says about depression is that because of the symptoms you're feeling, um which are in line with someone who would be experiencing depression, You're doing less because you don't have that same level of energy or motivation or you're not getting that same level of pleasure out of those activities. But through doing less, you don't have as much opportunity to feel that same sense of joy and mastery that you used to. So whereas going out with your friends might have used to be able to give you that kind of boost of joy or doing your weekly volleyball game would give you that nice sense of achievement you don't have that opportunity anymore. And so the less we have opportunity to feel pleasure and mastery, the more that we find that depression continues to get reinforced and gets worse over time. And so when we start working with depression in therapy, usually the first place we start is is with those behaviours and with those activity levels. So what we are going to look at doing is really try and identify some key opportunities for you to experience or have the opportunity to experience a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of mastery again. That way you can feed back into hopefully a good mood, a good sense of self, and start improving your mood gradually. It's important to note that this really isn't, about looking for things that are going to give you a full and instant return to joy, more likely than not, this is really going to be about incremental improvements. So we might see small shifts in your mood um, every single day that actually accumulate over a period of few weeks, and you'll find them almost generalize out into other areas or other top parts of your day. And so you'll notice that the more you give yourself this opportunity to feel pleasure and mastery the more your mood will start improving overall. I typically find that with most clients who engage with this consistently on a daily basis that it takes about two to three weeks and you'll start to notice that your, your mood shifts and you're starting to, you should start to notice some improvements in your mood and your ability to engage um, in these activities.
0: Mm, that was really nice and gentle. I really liked that. There are a few key things that I really loved, which was I really loved how you phrased it as an opportunity, say so opportunities for mastery and achievement. I thought that was really nice. I really liked how you also said the expectation about how this will work. You know, it's not going to be immediate. You're not going to be happy on top of the world after doing like, you know, drinking a green smoothie or something. Um, so expect it to take like two to three weeks and that you've also seen this work for other clients, but it has a good research basis. So it's really giving them that hope because a key symptom of depression is feeling like nothing I do is effective. Maybe the, the future is kind of hopeless. So it, is, it was really instilling that hope in a really kind and gentle way. Thanks,
1: Bronwyn. Yeah. That tends to be um sound somewhat like my spill in therapy. I feel like again, just giving them that education, but also validating where they're at, you know, setting those realistic expectations. But as you said, really reinforcing and instilling that sense of hope. Because mm. from my experience, this, this is really the case. Like when a client does engage in this consistently daily for a couple of weeks, I do tend to see really nice shifts in their emotional state, which is, which is lovely.
0: Yeah. And maybe just adding to that, like maybe some things that I would add, or you probably do this in your practice as well. Sometimes I added onto their values. Um, so Steph said to us, look, they really wanted to get back to their old self who was happy and motivated. And like, I really miss that person. And so I would have asked them beforehand, like, you know, what really matters to you in your life? And maybe Steph was saying like, you know, it really does matter to me to play volleyball because I really get along with my teammates and I feel a sense of belongingness and connection. And then I'd be like, 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 well, that's great. Like, I'm so glad that that's important to you. And I really want to help you get back to that person who's living the kind of life that they want to be and being the kind of person who they want to be. And how can we Mm -hmm. get it? to doing that. And, you know, I notice when you've dropped it, you felt worse. So I sometimes tie it to people's values. um, And I also try and explain things to people by drawing on a whiteboard as I go along. So I'll be being like, okay, we lost work. And then I'll be like, okay, then we stopped doing volleyball and then you felt worse. And then we stopped doing that. So I kind of do like a line that goes down or I'll do a circle and then kind of show them the reinforcing cycle of depression in amongst that. I try not to make them feel like a real dummy because like more likely than not, it's not like it's rocket science to work out. Like you stop doing this thing and you feel worse, but you really want them to be able to be like, maybe like you didn't even realize, like you stopped replying to the texts because you're just like, I can't, I can't deal with that. And then before you knew it, you had five or six things that have just suddenly piled up that you've stopped doing. And now you're in this state and it, and it's just really crummy.
1: Yeah. And you know, like
0: it's funny you say
1: that because I think you're right. Like it sounds it sounds almost so simplistic. Yeah. But you know, I'm surprised like how many clients actually I think, you know, sometimes as psychs, like we can definitely underestimate what is simple compared to like maybe the layperson, right? Because yeah. you know, having all this training and experience we're like, Oh yeah, come on, like I think <laughs> you don't know when you stop doing things, you're gonna not feel good. <laughs> it's true. Um, but but I think it's the way we frame it. And you're right, that does sound quite simplistic. I think when we link it specifically to those principles of pleasure and mastery, I find mostly clients are like, "Ah, oh, yeah, like that sounds so obvious, but why had I not thought of that? Or why yeah. didn't I know that? Or why did I not see that? And I like to be like really... I'm probably overly validating, but just like, why would you know that, you know, you haven't studied psychology kind of thing. Like I, yeah. we know this because of what we've studied and our training um, and our experience, et cetera. But I think sometimes it's like even drawing our clients to that obvious yeah. kind of point of like, yeah, of course you stopped doing this. So you're not going to be feeling as good. I think for sometimes they almost need that. Like they need you to hold up that mirror sometimes, you know, to really be able to see what's going on for them when they're in that state of despair.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And it's like, sometimes I can blow clients' minds by being like, did you know your previous history affects you now? And they're like, what? What? Um, So so it's like, yeah, these very like, you know, basic psychological concepts, basic air quotes, um, can really be um, novel information um, for clients. And, And that's fantastic. But yeah, we need to present it in a really kind, empathetic way. And I do the validating thing as well, Amanda. I'll be like, of course, why would you? Know this, like if you already knew how to do this, you would have done it. Like you know, we're working here together to help you along this journey, and I'm very happy to explain this and help you along. That's lovely, yeah. Okay, so we've got to explain to Steph, and the next thing is like I just like to unpack what the components of behavioral activation are, because as you said at the start, a lot of people just think it's activity scheduling. So, like from your perception, what is the actual steps involved in behavioral activation?
1: So I'm like really super structured in how I approach it, much like everything I do. But I think I really take this step-by-step approach of like, okay, firstly, we want to ascertain what's going on in their week. So I would typically get them to complete some sort of a log for me, Um, whether that be on like a paper form, their mobile, an app, whatever's accessible. They can even do it as an audio note. But essentially what I'm wanting to gather is some data around what their levels of pleasure and mastery already look like before we intervene. I want to get a bit of a baseline measure to see, okay, what are those patterns? Like, are there any patterns? Am I noticing that they're particularly feeling worse at this point of the day? Is there a particular activity in the week that is associated with their lowest Level of pleasure and mastery, or highest level of pleasure and mastery, and really tracking all those things over a period of about a week to see what we're working with. Then they'll bring that back to me. We talk through it. I, you know, we both, I'm obviously highlighting those points I just mentioned, getting them to reflect on some things. And now I'm trying to intervene. Now that I've got some data and I've got a little bit of a baseline measure, I will typically then, um, work at targeting specifically pleasure and mastery. So with my clients, I like to create, I like to create lists. So we'll do a pleasure list and a mastery list. And we're going to sit down collaboratively and identify potential pleasure activities and potential mastery activities. Um, But of course, this first takes me explaining to them, like, what is pleasure and what is mastery and what are some examples of that? Because I think for things like that, um, again, I don't want to assume they'll know exactly what I mean. I think for some people, when they think mastery, they might be thinking, oh, God, I've got to sign up for a uni degree, right? And we're trying to explain, no, no, like, mastery is in such simple things we do in the day that you know, kind of tie in with this sense of accomplishment, which then helps us with our self-esteem and blah, blah, blah. So I'm kind of providing that psycho word on pleasure and mastery examples. What is it? And I'm really, really careful to not be too directive with that kind of list making. I don't want to be suggesting ideas. I really want to draw from them. What do you think might give you an opportunity to feel pleasure or mastery And my only role in this is about managing expectations, trying to help them stay realistic, trying to make sure that we've got goals that are reasonable when I'm thinking of their capacity and really just like I'm kind of moderating it in some way, but I'm wanting them to to identify the, the tasks and the activities. What about you, Bronwyn? What do you
0: do? Yeah, no, I do something very similar. So I get them to keep a log of their activities across a week. And I actually did this myself a few years ago because I kept on asking clients to do it and then I didn't know what the experience was like for myself. I found it was a real pain in the ass. I could really only keep it up for a week. I don't know whether that's like low tolerance because of like I'm ADHD. It probably has a little bit to do with it, but I was like, God, this is hard. I hate this. Um, (laughs) So I say to them, do it for a week. I'm like, you can do it longer if you like, but um, you can do it for a week. And I'm happy with that. That's our baseline data. Um, I also get them to notice if they do experience any differences in pleasure and mastery when they're collecting that baseline data. So I get them to do just like an asterisk next to stuff that they actually did notice that difference because sometimes folks with depression they will be like I feel like this all the time and they're not actually recognizing or able to recognize that they do have some differences in their mood and I find that that's really helpful for later therapy as well because that's when I want them to do um, have a look at their thinking if I'm using a cognitive behavioral model and I want them to notice a shift in their mood for the better or worse and be like what was going through my mind just then so I get them to. that quite early and really notice that change in any change, no matter how small. So I get them to do that. And then I also do the pleasure and mastery activities as well. Also trying to be non-directive. And I usually try and link it back to their values and what they used to gain pleasure and mastery from. I do also keep it realistic, but I try not to shut them down. So if they're like, you know, they did horse riding 15 years ago and they want to get back into that. I'm not like, oh, I don't think you probably, you don't even own a horse. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like, sorry no. to be the Yeah, (laughs) I think you're going to do that. Um, So (laughs) I don't want to be a meanie. But I'll I'll definitely put it on the list. And I'll be like, yeah, that would give you a lot of pleasure. I wonder what we could do in the meantime, or how we could break this down into small steps. So you could get back into horse riding, like maybe step one is just doing a Google search horse riding Perth.
1: I love that. Yes. I, I like how you frame that. So you haven't shot them down. Yeah. You'll just say, yes, great. Now let's break it down a little bit. Yeah. And that was really like, that was on obvious right like yeah, it
0: didn't feel like you were yeah <laughs> I don't feel like you were trying to shut anything down but I can see what you were doing there that yeah was, that was lovely. so I really try and communicate and it's like I'm into this like I think horse riding would be great like yeah how can we make this happen and then you know that's a sense of mastery as well if we do the google search for horse riding so like it's all there and if they're really keen on it like why not go for it but then I make sure that we get some other stuff in there like getting out of bed making the bed brushing your teeth mm. brushing your hair um, for people who are very severely depressed this is the kind of behavior activities that I am getting them to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think like you've really got to think about this. Has this person been laying in bed for a month? If so, we're not going to be thinking about running a marathon. No. Um, it could just be those things as you said, like really basic self-care. What I try and like kind of say to clients is it like, obviously what, what I find pleasurable or what I find would give me a sense of achievement is going to vary so greatly to what you would or what anyone would really. And so the purpose of it is really about like, does this thing hit the mark? Like, does this give you that sense of pleasure and mastery? Because if so, awesome. We won't really know till we try anyway, but it's really about what it does for you as you're doing it. And so, I love that you mentioned about the rating because I forgot to mention that. Yes, that's such an important part of it. Like I do the same when I'm doing my baseline data, they have to rate it for me, their pleasure and mastery levels against every activity yeah. they are doing throughout that week. Cause otherwise we won't really know. Right. And the same goes for like when we're scheduling the stuff that I need to get a sense of like, what was your level of pleasure? What was your level of mastery as you were doing that activity? So we know if there's any improvement or so we can actually reflect on, hey, hold on, is this activity actually working? Is it making me feel any better in the moment? Is it helping me feel a sense of achievement? And if so, awesome. But you may find that we try things and it's like, actually, nah, this one wasn't working for me. And we can come back to the drawing board then.
0: Yeah, so the idea with clients is that they'll bring this back to us and then we'll review it and we'll kind of look for patterns. Like were there any activities that were really high in both pleasure and mastery? So sometimes people get that from a walk. Sometimes people have activities that were low in both. Um, sometimes they're having an overbalance of the pleasure, but not much mastery. So then they're not really feeling good about themselves. These are all really good patterns of data to have a look at for clients. Um, And we can also ask them like, what was your mood like when you engaged in that activity? So really getting them to connect with their mood. And if that activity wasn't as you had hoped, but you really are keen on doing it, like you really want to woodwork and build this rocking horse oh my gosh coming up with activities (laughs) on the fly Um, but it's like you know it didn't go as you would hope the YouTube video was too hard like do we need to do some problem solving and go to like you know woodworking rocking horse 101 so the clients bring it back to us and then we reflect um so maybe like once we do that Amanda what is the next step in behavioral activation
1: I think it's working out like what's working, what's not working, um, being willing to be flexible and kind of customise things. Look, you'll you'll also have clients who, I suppose if we're, we're looking at two different scenarios, if you've had a client who's come back and have been able to engage in this well, great. What we're really doing is reviewing, maybe troubleshooting a little bit. If we need to remove or replace activities for the week, we can do that. But we're just encouraging them to continue. So we're really looking at them doing this for at least a few weeks until we notice a change in their mood. And it isn't until we see that kind of shift in mood until we might move on to other interventions while they continue with that. However, let's say the clients kind of come back and they haven't engaged, they haven't been able to do it. Um, Obviously, this is now going to take us into a completely different direction, um, you know, with what's next.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, we've got two paths. And maybe we can talk about, um, I just want to give a few recommendations for increasing the likelihood of success. Is that okay? Yeah, I'd love that. So one of my top tips is like, write it down with the client. So either I get them to write it down, what they want to do, when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it and troubleshoot any barriers to doing it. So it's like they want to mow the lawn, but um, they don't have any fuel in the lawn mower. Okay, do we need to get some fuel from the friend um, or the next door neighbor? So break it down into steps, troubleshoot things that are going to get in the way. And I also ask them, could you see anything else that might get in the way of you carrying out this task? And how likely is it do you think That you'll actually do the task. Like, you know, be honest, like, I'm not here to grill you, Um, but it's like, you know, (laughs) we're both on the same page and we want the best for you. Um, So let's work it out in advance. So I write it down for them. I've got palm cards like that I've got for all my clients. And sometimes I ask them if they want to write it down. They usually ask me to write it down. They, They usually Ashamed of their handwriting, but mine is not (laughs) any good. (laughs) But whatever. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we write it down and then I check in and I'm like, oh, I also say to them, I think this is very important. But I say like, look, the outcome is not important. What is important is that you give it a go. So I don't care if you like, you know, the goal is to do step one of this build a rocking horse. I don't care if it if it doesn't work. I don't care like if if the joins are mismatched. Um, I don't care if the wood looks bad. I want you to like just have a go and any data is good data for us. Anything counts. Everything counts.
1: I love that Bronwyn. That's exactly like I suppose it's so similar to my approach too, because you're right, like setting them up for success yes. really is what yes. you're doing, mm. right? And we are foreseeing roadblocks before the they kind of happen. Hopefully we're trying to problem solve, troubleshoot what would get in the way, how likely are you to do it? Let's make sure that we are setting this person up kind of the, to maximize their chances of yeah. being to engage in those tasks, knowing how hard it's going to be this week.
0: Yep. Yep. So I say to them, like, even if you have a go and it doesn't work out as planned, please bring it back. Let me know. So that reduces the chance that they'll cancel the next appointment because they haven't done it. And then they're embarrassed about that. So I'm like, I want to know what happens either way. And remember that any step towards doing is a good step to take. I love that. That's like such nice little motivation. Yeah, I try. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. And it's (laughs) like, it's done all empathetically because it's like, I will have established with them, look, I know how hard this is. Like, I get that. I really see how much of a struggle it is for you. And I also do the CBT thing of, I do encourage them to give themselves credit after doing the tasks. And I usually frame that as like, most people hate this, <laughs> but I'm like, you don't have to throw yourself a party with balloons and like little cakes and stuff, but I would <laughs> like you it. Unless you want to. <laughs> yeah. But I do say that like, look, I would really like it if you just said silently in your head, it's good. I got myself to do that. Like, you don't even have to say you're proud of yourself. Like I'm just, it's good. I got myself to do that. Um, and then that's also reinforcing. It is. I think people underestimate that. Like, and particularly if you're depressed, you know, that kind of low sense of
1: self-worth that people will carry around or that sense of excessive, inappropriate guilt. Totally. And encouraging them to really reflect and make sure they reflect and be like, yep, I did a good job. I got mm. that done. And acknowledging themselves. You're right, it's such a small thing, but actually it can do so much in terms of feeding into that positive sense of self.
0: Yes. And I also find it really carries in. Um, Usually with folks who have depression, I'll be doing work on compassion and uh, addressing their inner critic because I go from a schema perspective as well. And so getting them just to like do that little step, it's quite a big step and it's something that we can build on later. Mm, Yeah, I really like that one. Is there any other tips that you have for increasing the likelihood of success with behavioral activation? Yes.
1: Excellent. Now that I think of it,
0: <laughs> um, motivation. This is a huge one. Oh,
1: yes. So what I try and do is I try and give my client a lot of psychoed or motivation. Oh, good Because one. obviously if they've got depression, they are very unlikely to have motivation. Yes, right. We know that. And they're probably setting out into the week feeling quite inspired after our session and not kind of anticipating that once they wake up the next day, they're not going to find that motivation or initiative to actually want to do these things that they perhaps really felt strongly that they were going to do, you know, maybe yesterday. Um, So I try and really set them up for that expectation that like, look, because of the fact that you've got depression right now, I just want to say that, you're probably going to find this a little bit challenging this week, more challenging than what you might've, you know, in Steph's case two months ago before you were feeling this way. What I want to tell you is that motivation makes things really easy to do. Like super easy. Um, I love feeling motivated to do things because there is rarely any trouble getting started, getting going and completing a task. But in saying that, while motivation is incredibly helpful, it's actually not required for us to do things. It just makes it a whole whole lot harder. So what I want you to know is that this week, if you are going to wait for that motivation to come in order to get yourself to do things, you are unlikely to find it. And so what you're going to find, at least while you are feeling depressed, is that the motivation is going to come in the doing Not before the doing. So you will need to actually get yourself started. And let's say one of our goals was go on a walk. You'll find that hopefully once you start walking, the motivation will come as you're doing the activity. Then that in itself will come reinforcing and you will be, I suppose, you'll find it easier to complete that task. And once you've completed that task and get that nice sense of reward or pleasure, that will become a little bit more reinforcing and a little bit easier for you to do it the next day and the next day and so forth so keep in mind the motivation will come in the doing not before.
0: Mm, I love that yeah it's so important because like you say they're not going to I guess perhaps realize how challenging it is so it's it's again setting them up for success by letting them know what to expect. Exactly
1: and I think just that one the motivation piece it's huge like you know, given again, we 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 really do rely on it to do most things as human beings, and we take for granted that when you don't have it, it's just so hard. It's so hard to get yourself to do things.
0: Yeah, it's so hard. Um, and sometimes I talk about that with clients when we have to do chores that we don't necessarily like. Like, I really find somebody who's like, "Oh, I love doing mopping. Oh, my favorite." So if we have to do, <laughs> <laughs> if we have to do things that we don't enjoy, I come up with clients with a few strategies. So I'm like, if we have to do the task, how can we make it more enjoyable? Can we chuck on some headphones and some music? Um, can we listen to a podcast? can we do it early in the morning? Cause you're a morning person or can we do it later at night when you're a night person? Yeah. How can we capitalize on like good energy and good feels, I guess?
1: Yeah. I think like, again, like it sounds like what you're doing, which is great is like that. It's like that setting them up for success and yeah. really troubleshooting before the trouble happens. Yes. Really trying to make sure we just set them off on the night, like a right foot, you know, so to speak, and and hoping that in doing so this week goes smoothly, then that in itself will be reinforcing, which will mean hopefully the work will become easier for the following weeks.
0: Yeah. And I think it also serves like a normalizing function and being like, you know, look, everyone has tasks that they don't like doing, which we don't have motivation for. There are some tasks that we need to do. And you're experiencing depression, which means that it's going to be even harder for you. So how can we set you up for the greatest opportunity to have that success?
1: Yeah, I think what a lot of depressed clients understandably need is just a little bit more hand-holding, yeah. I think, than maybe your average client. And I think for me, I, I really try and I'm really mindful of that when I work with depression um, in clinic that I'm like, okay, given what this person is experiencing right now, they're going to need a ton more support to do these these seemingly small activities, which don't feel like that to them, um, than perhaps a, a client who's struggling with anxiety, for example. So. With your depressed clients, it's really about considering that you're going to need to go slower. You're going to need to break steps down into really bite-sized chunks. That you're going to need to do all that problem-solving, strategizing, and and you know foreseeing roadblocks and all of that to a degree that might not feel, I suppose, um, I don't want to say normal, but it might it might seem quite more significant than with other clients. And so I I, I just expect that, and I think that handholding is is really essential, you know, really helping and guiding them through it because it's so hard for them.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's like, you know, on the face of it, behavioural activation seems to be a simplistic intervention, but it actually requires a lot of essential skills for being a therapist. It's like explaining the rationale to a client, getting them on board with the rationale, having them really own the rationale, explaining the steps, explaining the rationale for the steps, what to expect, troubleshooting, roadblocks, like how they can do it, remembering to do it, how they can report back. It's it's a lot of stuff, actually. It's a lot. Yeah. And the motivation piece. Yeah, Like, totally. I mean geez, like when you are
1: feeling low, like it's, it's a lot, it's yeah. all just a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think like, we've got to keep that in mind as clinicians as well. Like, you know, cause I've worked with so many early career psychs. I know that this can be a real struggle point mm-hmm. for people. Understandably that I think for me, what I try and always relay is like, don't forget that if you're finding this hard, your client is finding this about 50 times harder. Totally. Like this is really hard. For someone who's struggling with depression, don't underestimate that. And
0: how can you make
1: this easier for them?
0: And then the other pathway is that you say, okay, like give this a go. And they're like, yep, I'll definitely give it a go. And then they come back next session and then you're like, how did it go? And they're like, I didn't do it. Okay, so what do we do next? So I think this is where I like to do my troubleshooting. And I, I, I usually address a few
1: things. So I would always assume the problem is within the intervention, not with my client. So that's the first thing I will say to you that don't assume the problem is with your client and that they're, I don't know, not motivated enough, they're being lazy or whatever it is. Don't assume the problems with them. Assume the problem is with your intervention or your delivery in the first instance. So I'll usually start by reflecting or I would tell you to reflect Have I provided the right amount of psychoeducation about this intervention? Do they fully understand it? Do they know the science behind it? Do they know why we're doing this and what the purpose is and how it's going to help them? Have I instilled that hope? Have I provided them enough to really get why this is important and what those first steps are? Um, No, make sure you do. Yes, fantastic. Okay, let's now look at those activities. If they haven't been able to do them, let's start by first empathizing and validating with that client, you know, any kinds of negative feelings or associations that are now coming up because of the fact that they may not have been able to complete that and really make sure we're holding space for that. We're being warm, we're being empathetic, we're validating, and then try and work out with them what got in the way. So was it a motivation? Okay, let's do the psychoed piece on motivation and strategize around that was it that i don't know maybe childcare commitments or work or i don't know a relationship meltdown or something else got in the way okay maybe we need a problem solve around this was it the task itself did the task was it something they thought was accessible but actually in reality was like no i can't do this i thought i could but i can't okay that's fine let's go back to the drawing board and revise those activities Is it, as you mentioned, Bron, I think earlier in the episode about how do we just need to break it down and make it smaller? Was one of their goals going horse riding, but actually we need to say, you know what, let's just try first step Googling where you're going to do that horse riding and making sure it's a little bit more accessible. Was it the time of day? Do we need to reshift that? Was it like there are so many things that could have got in the way that client. And what I would tell you is, is we're trying to determine all those variables and problem solve with our client and really assume the problem is in the intervention and that it wasn't accessible for our client. And how could we make it more accessible for them?
0: Yes, one hundred percent. I really like your approach, Amanda. Um, it's really lovely and gentle, and really tries to get to the heart of what's happening for that client. So we really need that feedback from them. So the way that I usually do it in session is I'll be like, "Oh, what happened?" Um, and then they'll be like, "Blah blah blah, something got in the way." And then I might say, because usually I get them to say like, "How keen are they to do it?" And they'll be like, "Oh, I'm super keen to do it." And I'll be like, "You know, last session I heard you say that you're really keen to do it. I wonder, I wonder if that." Changed for you? And then I asked her about that. So I'm really wanting to test out these different hypotheses. Like, did they not have enough buy in or did they not understand what um, I was trying to get across? Did I not explain it very well or in a way that they could understand? Did I not um, explain the activity properly or did they not understand what it was that I was asking them to do? So, yeah, I am emphasizing, like, okay, what was it exactly that was not quite right here? Or they might not think that this is even the right intervention to start with. They're like, Hey, like I lost my job. I don't have any money. Maybe I just need some help with like looking up jobs on seek or something, or like, you know, I'm needing help updating my resume. And I really can't focus on building my rocking horse when I need to update my CV. Yeah. I I mean,
1: exactly. And I think like, it's that, that kind of troubleshooting that we're doing to work out why so that we can then address it. Um, And you might also consider like, you know, beyond that, like let's say you have genuinely done all the troubleshooting, right? This isn't just a matter of they've come back and you've decided they're not doing it and we need to move on. But maybe there are actually some other variables that you also want to consider. If you've been doing this for weeks on end and troubleshooting after troubleshooting after troubleshooting, you're not getting anywhere and you keep hitting a wall. There are several things that I would tell someone to think about. So firstly, I would be kind of questioning Like I'd I'd be thinking really about my case formulation of this person. So the more complex the client in terms of their psychological problems and history and how chronic their psychological kind of mental health history is, is going to tell you something too, right? Regarding how well they may take to this, how easily they may take to this. Now, in saying that, the research is very good for behavioural activation, but what I mean is that there could be other barriers also. There could be other psychological problems and other things that need to be addressed. There could also be, if your client is neurodivergent, for example, behavioural activation would really not be indicated, at least at the beginning. So depression, um, or I should say autistic burnout, can look like depression. And so if your client is neurodivergent and what they're actually experiencing is autistic burnout, behavioral activation wouldn't be the way to go. You'd be doing completely different strategies. They could be undiagnosed neurodivergent and perhaps it looks like depression and you don't realize they're neurodivergent. And in that case, they're unlikely to respond to behavioral activation if it is a burnout. You may also have clients who have such significant symptoms and i I just want to note that i've been doing this now for over 11 years and i can probably count on one hand how many times i've really had to 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 do this next step and i'm not saying that it's not indicated i'm just saying from my personal experience more often than not i find i can get things going with behavioral activation but there are going to be times where you'll have clients with symptoms that are so significant and so pronounced that actually, even when you break a step down to the most smallest bite-sized chunk, for whatever reason, it it just may still not be accessible for them. And for some clients, you may find that they actually benefit from taking antidepressants and and having that kind of lovely boost of some serotonin, which then assists them with those other physiological symptoms and makes it just easier to get going in therapy. And I've had that with a few clients where following just, you know, maybe a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of struggle, uh, we, we kind of looked at the option of medication. They went and spoke to their GP. They, they jumped on meds. And once the meds kicked in, actually everything became a lot easier.
0: Yeah, no, sometimes, yeah, medication is the thing that can actually help them. And I like to say to clients this is my metaphor for medication but it's kind of like if you imagine a bike with flat tires medication is what pumps up the tires and then you got to get on the bike and pedal so if you don't have the tires pumped up then no matter how hard you pedal you're not going to get going so yeah for some people it's really that medication is such a big help for like having the motivation to get out of bed so that then you can go and do something else that you want to do Ramon, that is such a good metaphor.
1: Thank you. I might take that from you. Yeah, go for it. I love it. Um, I think it's just such a good point because, like, I suppose many people don't know much about medication, right, and they have these kinds of, I don't know, I suppose there's a bit of stigma around taking medication for your mental health that might still be lingering in our community. But um, it's really just knowing that, like, antidepressant medication is actually just targeting those physiological symptoms. It's not something that can make you necessarily be happy or improve your life or fix your problems, (laughs) but it specifically targets the physiological experiences that are associated with depression, like sleep and mood and energy and concentration and, and all those things that make it hard to function. And so for a lot of clients, they just really benefit from that so that they become more receptive and more able to engage in therapy.
0: Yes, totally. Yeah, I love how like if antidepressants like it's like I've got an assignment to you. okay, just take an antidepressant it can write the assignment for you. You'll like, be fine. Yeah. <laughs> like if could all actually, be it in. Can, Yeah, if we could actually solve all those problems, I'd be down for for all the antidepressants. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me all the drugs. <laughs> yeah. But it really is that like, like I think the research shows that like the physiological differences is where the antidepressants can help the most and there's also some evidence that it can also um, improve sleep for folks who are depressed and they've got disrupted sleep cycles. So yeah, it's really interesting. Mm, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but (laughs) I know. We've gone off track and now we're talking about psychopharmacology. Yeah. I find it interesting. (laughs) Um, Anyway. um, So yeah, troubleshooting with when it doesn't go well, it's like essentially try and work out what's happening for that client and don't see yourself as against the client. Like see yourself as working with them. Like you're still working against them. Oh my gosh. You're still working with them, not against them,
1: yeah, I agree. And I think like, understandably, as a as a psychologist, if you're really early in your career, um, I've noted some people feeling frustrated, like when they're at this early stage of intervention with their clients, and they feel like we're not getting anywhere, there's no progress, they're going away, not doing anything, coming back, and not that they're frustrated with their clients, but more that they just feel frustrated with that process and and not understanding why, why isn't this working? And I would say to you that, yeah, like as, as Bronwyn has said, it's like we really need to work collaboratively with our clients. We're not working against them. We're working with them. It can feel really hard, but I, I, I like to remind people again, it's it's going to feel 50 times harder for your clients. But also I don't feel like, university prepares us well for this because we're kind of like given this false impression that depression's like, Oh, depression's the bread and butter. It's the easy stuff, you know, like as if that's the simple stuff to work with when I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Like this is the hard stuff. It's like really uniquely challenging because they, they, they don't feel able to function. They're not able to function. And so getting them to get going is really challenging. And so I just want you all to keep that in mind too, that this is actually a uniquely challenging space of psychology to work in. And so if you feel like you're not gaining any traction with your clients, that's that can be fairly normal, but just really reflect on what that client is struggling with and their level of functioning and their capacity and all those barriers and and really come at it from that approach and place of deep empathy. and really trying to see those struggles and why things are so hard for them right now.
0: Yeah, 100%. When you said like they're experiencing it 50 times or worse, it's like even if you're experiencing frustration as a clinician with your client, they're experiencing frustration with their self like without a doubt. It's like they've come to therapy, they're paying the money, they're spending the time to come see you, they're wanting the results. How frustrating it must be for them that they can't get themselves to do like, you know, a simple air quote thing that they want to do. That must suck. Yeah, I think so. And like, it's just,
1: for me, I always worry about that sense of like, you know, if things don't go well this week, um, you know, when they're setting out on these tasks, like what that feeds into for them for some clients they're going to come back and feel worse and feel more guilty and feel terrible because i couldn't even do this like how useless i am and you know, as you said, it's like their level of frustration is going to be through the roof. Yeah. Um, If they're unable to achieve these small things. So we need to be so mindful of being like incredibly validating, really empathetic, holding that nice warm space for them and really making sure we're not losing sight of the therapeutic relationship and holding that space for them so they understand and know that we know yeah this is hard like if I was in your shoes I would find this hard too Mm. and I'm here to help you and I'm here to guide you and really allow them to feel that support from us and that kind of um that sense that we're, we're, we're here if they don't have the hope for themselves yet we do
0: Mm, yes, holding the hope is very important. And just another troubleshooting tip that I had was that if you've got a client who's struggling to do stuff outside a session, begin the task in the session. So if we take our horse riding example, and it's like, we're like, okay, Google horse riding outside the session, I will grab my laptop and I'll be like, here's my laptop. Okay, let's Google horse riding, see what you can come up with, we'll do it for five minutes. And so, yeah, we'll get started in the session. Like I've done that lots of times and it's just like, okay, like how was that for you? What did you notice? What's the next step? When do you want to do it? So, yeah, get there. Love that idea. Yes, get started in session. Yeah, Great, Bronwyn. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. I think I've covered everything that I want to cover with behavioral activation. Such a rich topic. Amanda, is there anything that we've missed that you really want to say to the listeners? Honestly, I, I think we've covered everything nicely, I hope. I think we've,
1: you know, talked through what it is, how to introduce it, the evidence, the maybe some of the steps you take, some troubleshooting, um, and even just some out-of-the-box troubleshooting about like, what are some other variables you might need to consider beyond this? I think we've we've covered it really well. I would just say again, that this is probably an area that I notice um, as someone who trains and supervises early career psychs, that it's an area that there's probably there could be some more room for improvement in skill development that many early career psychs uh, don't just get enough training, I think, on how to do this and do it well. And so there's a lot of misconceptions that, oh, it's just activity scheduling. Like all we're doing is just scheduling activities and that will make them feel better. And then they don't understand why it's not working. And so I'm always surprised when I hear that. So I would say to you that this is an area um, that the research and evidence is actually so good that at the moment, some many recent studies um, have looked at this being used as its own standalone yeah. intervention. Yeah. Like that's how good it is that it can be used as a standalone treatment for depression. It's almost comparable to a whole uh, course of CBT for depression. Yep. Um, so in instances where clients may not be able to afford full, you know, twenty sessions of therapy, and we're looking at time efficient effective strategies for depression. This is it, right? And so I would tell you as an early career psych, get your training, get your skills, get your supervision in this space, because it's such an underused, but really effective intervention for depression. And it's one that you should feel quite competent with.
0: Mm, I 100% agree. And yes, it is so cool that it can be used as a standalone intervention. But I think what's happening is that people just think, oh, it's so simple. Like, and then they're like, just give them the worksheet. And then they're like, why are they doing the thing? And it's like, you just gave them a worksheet. They said they hate worksheets. Of course, they're not doing the thing. I feel like, yeah, it's, it's a skill, essential skill to get good at really working with them like we've covered so much today and it involves so many different skill sets as a therapist to be able to to get that right for people who are who are just really you know experiencing a lot of difficulty. I agree
1: Um, I think given that depression is probably one of the most common
0: presentations you're
1: going to see in clinic and if not the primary presentation it is co-occurring with most Uh, Psychological disorders. So you need to know what's evidence based for the thing that you're going to see most. And behavioral uh, behavioral activation is it. This is the this is the intervention. You just need to know how to do it well. You need to kind of hone in on your skills and competency around this because when used well, it works really good
0: yeah okay i can feel like the listeners being like yep yeah, yep yeah, brandon and amanda i got it yeah, I got, got it. it. <laughs> yeah. we got it <laughs> stop, stop, stop saying that. how great it is <laughs> okay okay listen i hear you we love it <laughs> yeah if you can't tell like amanda and i are really into this <laughs> we are really into this i really am <laughs> Um, Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for coming back on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for listening. I think, Amanda, you did want to share and I want you to share how listeners can find out more about your great training on behavioral activation. I think it's included in your depression training. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I have got a um, online professional development training. It's a recording of a past live workshop I held on assessment, diagnosis and evidence-based interventions for depression. Um, And within that, I talk out quite thoroughly how to to use behavioral activation and how to implement it with enough skills and kind of um, demonstration that you should feel quite confident after that training. I also have a therapy manual, uh, treating depression, a manual for therapists. And this will also include a lot of relevant Psychoeducation um, and kind of discussion on theory of behavioral activation, as well as worksheets, therapy worksheets, session plans, the whole lot, really, um, for depression, but obviously the, a component of that is behavioral activation. So
0: you can find both of those on my website. Brilliant, and I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Amanda again. Thanks listeners for listening. Have a good one. Catch up, Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. If there's someone you know who might love this show, let them know about it. It's the best way to get the podcast into new listeners' ears and I'd be so grateful for it. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.